Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. And we are recording. Everybody seems a little sleepy today. I don't know what that's about, but it's all right. It's our midsummer doldrums. Yeah, it feels like, you know, like in kindergarten, that two o'clock time when you had to put the little rug on the ground and you get your cookie. (laughs) Oh, I would like a rug and a cookie right now. (laughs) If you're a good boy, Billy, maybe we can arrange that. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see if you get a cookie. I'll skip the rug. But we're talking about, yeah, good and bad behavior today in many ways. We're going to visit the whole idea of the eviction moratorium that was put in place with COVID-19 pandemic and how that has changed in the last year, what has worked about it and what has not worked, especially out here where we have a lot of vacation rentals. And there have been a few bad actors who have abused the system and overstayed their welcome. So with that in mind, let's say hello to Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hey, and I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we also have Brendan O'Reilly with us today. Hiya, Brendan. Hi, I'm Brendan. I'm the features editor. And Catherine G. Manu, aka Georgie, is sitting in today. Hey, Georgie. Hey, and I'm Catherine Manu, sometimes known as Georgie, and I am a co-publisher of the Express News Group. And I like that shirt. You're wearing a a Sag Harbor Express whaleboat shirt, if I am recognizing that correctly. I am. This is a this is a classic. We actually do have though a bunch of new merch on the way, including these kind of classic Sag Harbor Express t-shirts. So we'll have new merch for the Express. Yeah, Joe, I know I've got I've got one set aside in my mind for you already. All right. Um, so we've got shirts and hats for all of the papers, um, you know, and the company as a oh, whole coming. Thank so you. We can all wear our Express News Group vest. Well, we have to give one to our intern, Sophie, because she was asking me yesterday about some kind of identifying merch because she feels weird showing up at events and not really having anything that shows that she actually works for us. So so I, I stole a hat off of Bill's desk. I hope you're okay with that, Bill. It, it, it was dusty. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, she didn't seem to mind. <laughs> and then I, I kind of made a little press pass for her too that she could take her out. So. Um, and also with this is Joe Shaw. Hey, Joe. Yeah. And, and last but not least, I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. No, last but not least is me. I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express <laughs> News Group. So, um, yeah, so we thought it would be kind of interesting. You know, we're uh, a, a little more than a year out of the COVID experience, which is still kind of going on, although New York's in really good shape as far as vaccinations and things. But, um, but wisely, during the pandemic, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, put into place in New York eviction moratorium, meaning that landlords could not boot their tenants in the midst of the pandemic if they could prove hardship. Um, But one of the unforeseen circumstances that arose is that people who had other places to go were sort of using that eviction moratorium as a reason to not vacate properties that they were renting here um, on the east end of Long Island. And we heard some real uh, harrowing and horrible tales of um, some badly behaved um, incidents where people just could not get tenants out of their place and the tenants would stop paying. And I'm going to turn this over to Brendan uh, O'Reilly because Brendan writes about housing issues and residences, his section. So he writes a lot about real estate 
and he's usually the most up on what's going on. So Brendan, I wondered if you want to sort of encapsulate what's been happening in the last year um, in terms of rentals and landlords out here. Going back to March 2020, Governor Cuomo had his executive order that said no evictions for non-payment of rent, uh, no foreclosures, and that included both residential foreclosures and commercial foreclosures. So you have this thing where both the tenants can't pay rent and then the landlords who now can't pay the mortgage because they're not receiving rent payments, well, they can't be foreclosed on either. So that kept people in their houses during a crisis. And that was to provide housing security, but also to to reduce the spread of the crisis. You can't have everybody leaving houses and going into crowded shelters during a pandemic. And it was also a lesson learned from the last recession where people were just getting foreclosed on left and right. And it just compounded the issues that we had when a foreclosure moratorium back then really could have saved us a lot of headaches. Now, what the foreclosure and the eviction moratorium does not include is it does not waive your rent. It does not waive your mortgage payment. So if from March 2020 until July 2021, you haven't paid rent just because you can't be evicted, well, guess what? You still owe all of that back rent. Now, I've spoken to a lot of attorneys and landlords who have told me how difficult it is for landlords to actually get back rent. Usually, when they get a judgment that grants them the right to evict somebody, that person isn't even out immediately because the sheriff ends up coming and evicting the person. But you have to have a separate action for occupancy and use. So if you evict somebody and then it takes another 60 days or during this pandemic, it could take several months for the sheriff's office to come in and actually evict the person, even if you had one judgment for occupancy and use, now for those extra five months that it took the sheriff to get around to evict those people, you would have to then sue again for occupancy and use. Now, if somebody's just renting like a small apartment or something, and it's like, oh, well, five months, that's $10,000. How much am I going to spend on legal fees? How much aggravation is this going to be? I'm just going to forget about it. Now, in the Hamptons, you have people that rented who were supposed to be out before Memorial Day, and then they stayed all summer. So you could have a unit that is $1,500 a month to rent during the winter, and then they stayed and refused to leave between Memorial Day and Labor Day when the rent might be $10,000 a month. And we all know that there's places where people pay $100,000 a month. We're not really seeing people abusing the eviction moratorium at the ultra high end. It's affecting you know, small landlords. Mm. And a lot of times it's somebody who has one house someplace else, one house in the Hamptons. They intend to use their Hamptons house for the summer and then they didn't get to because their tenant refused to leave. Initially, when Governor Cuomo did this order, it wasn't very clear that people had to prove anything. So when he updated and extended the order, he said, no, you can't just stay because you feel like staying. You have to have a hardship. Eventually, it was codified uh, in December by the New York State lawmakers. They took the eviction moratorium, they made some tweaks, and they said, okay, this is the law now. Uh, you need to sh have a hardship declaration 
and you could present it to the court, you could present it to your landlord. It just has to be presented saying, I'm afraid of this virus or I have no place else to go. Uh, I'm gonna get exposed to the virus if you kick me out of here. The thing about the hardship declaration is it's such a low bar to say, I've been negatively affected by this virus. My job has been impacted. My ability to find housing has been impacted. So there are people who have been working this entire time. They've been collecting paychecks, but they are not using their paychecks to remit rent to their landlord. This will catch up with them. There's going to be a lot of lawsuits. It's going to take years and years to resolve because the courts are so backed up. As I mentioned earlier, when the governor said, hey, you can't just stay because you feel like it, you have to have an issue, you have to have no place else to go, that all sounded great. But then the lawyers I spoke to said, you, you, you can't evict anybody. Well, the governor just said, you can. You can't evict anybody when the courts are closed. Right. And then when the courts did reopen, hearing eviction cases is the last thing that they wanted to do. We had a case in Sag Harbor where a couple was supposed to get their house back for the summer. There was a real estate agent living there with two dogs that destroyed the house, destroying doors because they, you know, leave the dogs in the house. They try to get from one room to another and just destroy things. Lawns being destroyed, no rent being remitted. Uh, there was a situation in West Hampton uh, where a man and his girlfriend were living in a house in West Hampton that they were supposed to vacate in the summer so the landlords could move in themselves. They refused to leave. They stopped paying rent. They actually own apartments that they could go live in, and they even own apartments that they rent to other people, so they have other options. I think they were even renting that house out for bare. They were doing an Airbnb in the house as well, so they were also making money on it. Yeah, yeah. They were renting out rooms, and that was explicitly prohibited in the lease. So you could prohibit. You know, you could break the rules that you agree to in your lease, which is a separate reason to evict somebody. Somebody could be paying, but if they break the rules of the lease, they could still be evicted under normal circumstances, but it just became nearly impossible to get anybody out. I feel like so much of this is just about the ripple effect of the pandemic, that during the pandemic, we had to take so many actions to just sort of deal with it in the short term but the ripple effect is going to just go for years and, and it, it's, it's going to have an impact on so many different people in so many different ways. Um, and as you said, Brendan, I think it's just going to be years until a lot of this is resolved. I think also out here, it's especially challenging because, you know, it was hard to find a place to live prior to COVID. And, and the minute that people lost even a week of work, so many people live week to week out here. So like there was probably a lot of legitimate cases of people who, you know, in 2020, just like could not make their rent because they needed every day of work at a restaurant or in a retail establishment, you know, just to get by here. Then conversely, I know in East Hampton, you know, where I grew up, there's a lot of people in my generation who, you know, saved everything they had and bought a second property if they could get in early and young when you still could get in for a few hundred grand you know and they use that as income and that income allows them to continue to live here so it's just it's such a double-edged sword i mean it because it's i think there's legitimate issues on both sides so if somebody's squatting in that investment property that 
that is used to supplement their income and get them through for the year. Um, I mean, what a what a pickle they're in. And there's no for there's no foreclosure, but but at the same time, as Brendan said, that's money that the property owner is going to owe in the long term, and they've got to come up with. So it may take a year or two for that to the hammer to come down, but it but it will come down, and it, it affects landowners just as much as it affects tenants. And mortgages are not a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, even. You know, in many places out here, you're talking two, three, four thousand dollars a month for houses that are like in the entry level, <laughs> east of the canal. You know. <laughs> also, living out here, you know, reading about this story on some of the like more national publications, people love to vilify landlords in the Hamptons, like. Anybody, if you own a house out here, you're a millionaire and ooh, boo-hoo, I don't feel, you know, like there was a lot of like commentary about how people don't feel an ounce of sympathy for anyone that owns the house out here. And I think that's just also, you know, again, how that stereotype of being on the East End really ends up becoming a way to vilify anybody who happens to live out here. Um, but it did seem like there was a lot of that out there too, like absolutely no sympathy for land, uh, landlords who are trying to get back into their property. Um, for the summer. Well, there's just such a skewed view of what the reality <laughs> of the population of the East End is. You know, it's, you know, people's ideas of what they see on a Bravo reality show is everybody. And of course, all of us in this room know that that's like such a small portion of the population who's likely only here in the summer. And, and in fact, Annette, you made the point that this is about affordable housing in the sense of people buying houses, being able to stay here and being landlords in order to do that. So, so it does have an effect on the, it's not the high end that's, that's getting the effect. It's, it's having an effect in both directions um, on people who are just barely hanging in to, to be able to live here. And that's, that's the, the real alarming thing about this. It's already a crisis and this is just one more headwind uh, that people have to deal with. Fred Thiel jumped in on this, though, didn't he, Brendan, um, a while back to, to kind of tweak the legislation for the eviction moratorium in order to maybe make it a little bit easier for landlords of seasonal rentals to get tenants out and not be beholden to the same rules. Is that correct? Even before COVID and the eviction moratorium happened, there was a housing act passed at the end of 2019 that very much benefited tenants over landlords. It made it very, very difficult to get people out. And I remember writing back then that there was concern about getting people out of rentals. If you have somebody who comes for 10 months and is supposed to leave, and then it takes at least 60 days to evict that person, now you've just lost your income for the entire summer. Right. Or maybe, you rent out your house in July, you have somebody else coming in August, the person who came in July said, well, I just want to stay. And then you lose income for August. Conversely, uh, there was also an issue where you weren't allowed to collect the rent payment for the entire summer up front. It used to be if somebody was staying Memorial Day to Labor Day and the price was $100,000, they would pay $100,000 plus whatever the security deposit is. That 2019 state law said you cannot collect more 
than the equivalent of one month's rent as a security deposit or an advance. Now, this helps people trying to move into their first apartment, right? Because it was often the case that you would have to pay first month's rent, security deposit, and last month's rent, or they would just call it first month's rent and double secure. When I was in college and we were trying to rent a house with some friends for you know eight months of the school year, they said, we need first, last, and double security. It becomes insurmountable to come up with that much money upfront for a lot of people unless you have a lot of savings. And guess what? Not a lot of people have a lot of savings. But when you apply this to somebody that's renting a house in the Hamptons for the summer, you don't really need to protect that tenant's interest. That person that's renting a beach house for $50,000, $100,000, that's not a poor person that's going to have no place else to go if they weren't being protected by the state law. So it was overly broad. And the idea is to revise that so it no longer applies to seasonal rentals. You know, the whole idea out here of getting the, the rent up front is that that way, um, if somebody leaves, you know, they could stay, they could stay um, one or two months and then having paid um, only partial summer rent, then they could leave. And then that landlord is left without a tenant to pay, you know, August or whatever month they leave. So then you end up kind of scrambling and not getting the full, um, the full summer amount, which is why the rentals have typically asked for the money up front. Um, ahead of time. I mean, that even happened. We rented a house in Southampton Village when I first moved out here. And um, same thing, like we were there for a whole year, but we literally had to pay the entire amount, like, you know, between, you know, I think when we moved in in May, because we happened to move in in the spring. So, you know, that way the landlord was covered. If we ended up leaving in September, um, she at least knew she had her money for the year. So, wow. And just the fact that landlords think like that tells you that people do that that they right. will they will run out on these tabs and it's happened in the past so um and as you go to the higher end there's a lot more money involved in that and and so uh you can start to see the th this is a unique area in so many ways and, and this is one of those ways uh that that a law the the laws that have been passed at the state level that are meant to address the crisis kind of don't apply here because of some of the, the, the unique qualities of real estate out there. Yeah, I mean, I think another issue also at play is the reality that a lot of landlords have chosen to go to seasonal rentals as opposed to a year-round rental where maybe the rent is, you know, a lot more affordable, but you're getting 12 months, you're guaranteed a, a year-round renter, likely a member of the community, but people saw that they could make so much more money with those seasonal rentals that they pulled back from that. I mean, I think if you talk to a lot of public officials, that is one of the big reasons that our affordable housing crisis has just gone through the roof because there's just not very much year-round housing anymore. Yeah, I mean, and, and why even, I mean, even if you own one of those houses and you're renting it out in the summer, then why even offer it in the winter if you're making four or five times as much as you would make, you know, renting it year round, just in those two or three months in, in the summer. And you don't even have to bother to try to find a winter renter. But meanwhile, that's how families made it. I mean, growing up here, that's how families made it work in East Hampton. Even when I was a kid, you know, my husband, the co-publisher of the paper, you know, his mom used to rent 
a winter rental. They'd have like this nice house <laughs> to stay in as a family in East Hampton during the school year. And then they would get like a box that they were living in <laughs> in Springs for the summer. And that's how people made it work, you know? And so, you know, there is a lot lost there it's interesting like with so many people who chose to stay out here through the pandemic a lot of those the winter rentals were gone too just by nature of you know people who wanted their kids let's say in the sag harbor school district or the east hampton school district or whatever school district they were after um also really like paying top dollar for winter rentals in order to get their kids in the particular school district that they were interested in so that was a whole other winter rental thing so the new york state legislation that was adopted in december according to Assemblyman Fred Thiel said, it expressly excluded from this law seasonal rentals. So if you don't have any, you don't have any protection if you're there for the season, basically anything less than a year, and you have another place to go back to. So I think that's where it gets complicated because if you were living with your parents, say, and then you rented a place for nine months uh, and then decided to overstay, your landlord could kick you out and say, well, your this was a seasonal rental. It was less than a year. Well, do you really have a place to go back to? What if your parents don't want you anymore? Like what, you know, who is the arbiter of whether you have a place to go back to? If you own a house, if you have another apartment, yeah, it's clear you have a place to go back to. Your honor, he has an apartment in the city. Well, what if it's your parents' apartment? I, I, I'm really curious to see how these cases will play out in the courts because there's going to be so many of them, and I'm sure one judge is going to set the precedent, and then all the other judges are going to try to follow that. And if the original precedent is not followed, there's going to be a lot of legal arguments. And as was mentioned earlier, this is going to stay with us for years. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Raro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Are we still hearing about new cases like this? Like the ones that you had mentioned a little earlier, I think were um, last summer, 2020. What are we hearing now about these kind of um, cases of tenants overstaying their welcome? And has uh, Theo's legislation helped cut down on that? Because I think, it's, was there a 100-day rental? Is that the cutoff? And then if people stay 101 days, it's going to become a lot harder to get them out. Yeah, so I, I know um, that in Sag Harbor, I cover the police slaughter in Sag Harbor. And you know, generally we're, we're not jumping in on much of this because it's kind of it's like a civil dispute, um, which we generally try to stay away from in our police blotters. But um, it, there's like two or three items every week um, from the same people. So like I've seen their name, you know, since the pandemic began or since their landlord or they started feuding. Um, and it's unclear who's, you know, you, you, I don't know the full story, who's to blame, but 
you know, you're definitely seeing it pop up still in the police blotters, landlords calling the police and tenants calling the police um, and saying that their landlords are in violation of what's going on. Yeah, I think, look, it's, it's important to note that we're talking about, perhaps we're talking about two different types of people here. I, I think, you know, the sexy stories that we were talking about at the beginning with, you know, people, um, you know, overstaying, overstaying their welcome at, at more expensive properties when they had somewhere else to go to. But look, the pandemic affected a lot of people and their ability to, to, to pay their rent. And I think that um, I, I just wonder, I mean, how much time do you give people to try to catch up? And if they can't catch up, what do you do? Obviously, you feel you feel sympathy for the landlord, the landlord's got to make a mortgage payment, and all that. But if, if people lost months of, of salary, um, and, and couldn't pay rent for months because of the pandemic, how do you then catch up? I think there was some, some aid offered, um, from from the state or for the federal government, Brendan, that for 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 families in, in those situations to try to help make up for some of that rent and I think even some mortgage payments, right? There was federal aid distributed to the states, and then the states had to choose how they were going to administer it. And there's actually television advertisements now publicizing to people that they can apply for this. So if you lost income due to the pandemic, you as a tenant can apply for rent relief or even uh, utility bills relief. Hmm. Now there's some tenants that are not going to go out of their way to pay their landlords. You know, these are people that are gonna melt this for as long as they can. And then when they eventually get kicked out, they'll move on to the next place. The people who still have a good relationship with their landlords and wanna do the right thing and they wanna live there for another five or 10 years, they'll go and they'll apply for this aid so their landlords can get paid, they'll be more caught up on rent, and then they can work out a deal for the, the back rent, whether it's forgiven, whether um, they pay a little bit extra every month when things get back to normal. But there's other tenants who are not going to go out of their way to apply for state aid to say, oh, let me apply for thousands of dollars that I don't get to keep myself that my landlord gets to keep. They're not going to do that. So there are some avenues for landlords to apply for it. But if you have a landlord and a tenant who are not on the same page, I think it's going to be very difficult for mm. landlords who are just uh, getting scammed almost to get access to any of that money. The irony, of course, being that there's an economic uh, stimulus aspect to that as well, that that money that would resolve some of these disputes and back, back uh, mortgage payments and back uh, rent is also money that would then be reinvested into the economy. So uh, if if people don't apply for that when they're eligible for it, uh, the economy suffers for that as well. So. Well, the eviction and foreclosure moratorium in the state of New York continues now through the end of August. So it's been extended a bunch of times before. This is the one time where I'm watching it and I th think it possibly won't be extended or maybe they will just reduce the scope of it. Maybe they'll make it income qualified so it's only extended for certain people and not in this overly broad way that it's continuously been extended. What I'm interested to see is when the foreclosure moratorium is lifted, how many houses are gonna be foreclosed on? How many houses will suddenly be on the market? What is that gonna to do to housing prices? You know, one of the things, and it's the, it seems to be the next topic of almost every conversation we have, but it's about affordable housing. 
and the impact of all this on affordable housing. And I think it's, you know, Fred Thiel's legislation uh, to create a community housing fund in the five towns on the East End uh, is sitting on the governor's desk right now. We don't know if he's going to sign it this time or not. He didn't last time. He vetoed it last time. Uh, there were some changes this time, and Fred Thiel said in your section of the paper just uh, recently, Brendan, that he's optimistic that the governor will sign it this time. But what alarms me is that I don't think there's enough conversation taking place in the five towns right now about how that money would be spent. That's work that should be done now, and it's not happening. And, and that, to me, is really alarming because, yeah, yeah I, the big the big, um, you know, the, 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 the big obstacle is the money. And this would create a separate real estate transfer tax that would provide money to the towns to deal with affordable housing. But if you don't have a plan for how you're going to spend that money, it, it doesn't make it, that money will pile up and, and it won't get spent. And if we see a little bit of that with the uh, water quality money from the CPF, I don't feel like the towns really were prepared for how best to spend that money. They're finding ways to spend it, but I feel like there could have been a much more calculated plan in place for a strategy for using that money. But with affordable housing, it's gonna be even more crucial. I, Brendan, I, we've talked about this before. Um, I, I feel like the towns need to be much more aggressive just as a starting point with seasonal housing. And there might be some solutions to creating almost like dorm-like facilities for summer workers, young people who come in and they're, they're not able to find rentals anymore where, you know, it used to be group rentals and it used to be a room and a house and it used to be things like that. If you can create some communities have experimented now with almost like dorm style housing where you have your private room but you have public spaces as well. And you gather 16 or 20 people in one building and they live in this communal environment. I think, you know, there's no impact on the school districts. That's always the first thing everybody worries about. You do have to worry about sewage and things like that. Those are all challenges, but it would create a housing opportunity for seasonal workers that, that, they're not going to be um, left out in the cold. And I think that begins to start to turn things in a positive way. And then people who have winter rentals, as Georgie talked about, you know, if you have a winter rental and you need a smaller place in the summer, maybe there's some kind of an allotment for locals who are year round residents who need to do that. Um, maybe there's some type of a small house development or something that, that could be there for them. But not, these conversations should be happening now and they're just not. I mean, the reality is if, I mean, I appreciate that we need to develop seasonal workforce housing a hundred percent. And I'm sure there's models where businesses could like buy like, or, you know, rent at an affordable rate, a block of rooms that they in turn then give to their, you know, employees. Like I'm sure there's great models out there. The reality is our year round population is dropping so quickly at this point. Our emergency services are all wrapped up in volunteers in a year round situation. Our school districts, you know, you know what's really impacting our school districts? Teachers not being able to live here. We just had a story in this week's East Hampton Press about a superintendent, or I'm sorry, a principal who is leaving 
because it's just too expensive and he'd rather be closer to home. He doesn't want to commute out here. So, I mean, I think the year-round housing, I'm not, I, I'm not discounting what you're saying at all, but I think the year-round housing situation has hit such a serious crisis level that, you know, and a lot of people don't want to hear this, but we have to start talking about some higher density projects. You have to start talking about how to incentivize people building affordable apartments on their single family home properties, um, which there are programs in place for that, but it's very expensive to build one of those units. And people are just not taking advantage of it at any kind of pace that, that addresses the problem. If it's gonna take you 15 years to pay back building that apartment, it's really hard to justify it in your head. Do you know what I mean? Like, so we just have to start looking at all these different ways. And you're right, Joe, if they don't have a plan in place when this money comes through, it's just gonna be sitting there doing nobody any good. I thought it was interesting that the East Hampton School Board, when they talked about losing the principal, said, well, now we're stuck in a position where we have to start looking locally to hire um, people for this position. Well, welcome to the party, because that's been what a lot yeah. of us, a lot of businesses <laughs> have reached that point a long time ago that, that I know that's true of, of our organization, that when we used to, when I arrived 20 some years ago, you know, we would be thrilled to be bringing in young graduates from Yale and Harvard who would move out here and find a room in a house somewhere and, and be our reporters. That, that model is gone. And we are now looking almost exclusively at young people and, and middle-aged of veteran reporters who are already here. And fortunately, it's, a, it's an area that has some real talent. So it's, you know, it's, not a, it's not a crisis for us necessarily. But I think that's been true for most businesses. And now it's starting to affect the schools. Um, and that's been true with teachers, but now it's becoming true with administrators even can't afford to live. I mean, what are we talking about? And I think with, with the schools and, and administrators, teachers, whatever, you want to hire the best person for the job. You're, you're educating your children. You don't want to, to have to you'd be forced to hire just somebody that lives in, in the neighborhood. However, the, the school board also mentioned that there's some pluses to that as well because it's nice to have people who grew up here who are part of the school community too. So it's, it's complicated, but, but there's no question. The bottom line is no matter who you hire, they have to be able to afford to live here. And I think that more and more, yeah. even professional, I mean, I, I think it's notable that it's not just teachers now it's administrators. I mean, it, you would think that it's just like nurses versus doctors, you know, you're, you're going to, to start to see that impact happening at various income levels. And, and we're going to start to see a quality of life drop if we don't address it. It's a crisis. It's been a crisis. I think the hospital already saw that with doctors, didn't they? That, that they were having trouble um, retaining doctors in the different practices out here because they just couldn't afford to move out here to live. Young doctors, I, I think. Doctors. And they went out and bought properties so that they could make it part of uh, make those properties available for for young young physicians I think that's how the meeting house lane I think um, group came together was right. through that but I was curious you know I've always wondered like what goes on at the Stony Brook Southampton campus where they have all those dorm rooms that they I don't do they even use those it just seems like that's like a real no-brainer as far as like using those for seasonal housing they've got like dorms there but I don't think that there's a lot of students living in those are there i've heard rumblings that that 
those conversations have happened, but I don't think they've happened on any kind of significant level. And, and that's the problem. I, I just think we're, we're long past due having those kinds of conversations. I think when they've had conversations about moving the hospital to that, to that site, then they were talking about medical personnel living in those dorms. But yeah, I think you're right. I think they rebuilt them. They were, they were brand new right before the, the campus changed hands and, you know, and went to, went to Stony Brook. They had, you know, done, um, you know, remodeled all of them. And so I think they're really shiny and new and, and like you said, unused. Or maybe the, maybe like turning the old hospital into an affordable housing complex once they do move to the new campus would be a way to go. I mean, that's a great point. And at, I mean, the, the village is going to have to decide what to do with the old hospital property when that hospital is built um, on the Shinnecock Hills College campus. So one of, the, one of the concepts that people have pitched in broad strokes is having sort of a mixed use situation, which would have, but I, I think to a large degree, a lot of the conversations has been about retirement facility rather than affordable housing. And I feel like maybe it's an opportunity to try and tick both boxes and, and make it, and, and you know, th there's, a, there's a model out there where you also include a little commercial development so that it becomes a walkable neighborhood type of a situation um, in the middle of the village in a place that's still a little far for people to walk to get to, to you know, places they need to get to. So, it, I mean, but again, I, you know, I think the pandemic stalled everything for a little while, but we don't have the luxury of being stalled for long on this. We've got to start having conversations. I can already hear the outrage. You know what I mean? Like, can't you guys, can't you already hear the residents around that hospital Absolutely. property rioting about the fact that their property values on their multi-million dollar house are going to be diminished by this housing? But there won't be a siren going all night. It won't be siren. <laughs> and I don't think we, we don't need to call it affordable housing, even if it's just like market rate apartments, you know, by right, its own exactly. nature. It's not like I mean, some of it is market like yeah. in Southampton Village is a million dollars. Market rate is not like doable for a lot yeah. of people. I, I mean, I think I think when we use a term like affordable housing, it it it's a whole different. I mean, that means whatever you think it means, but I think in in most cases we're talking about um, places that that people who live here and work here can afford to just exist, and you know, and, and it it bears mentioning. That's all well and good, Joe, but don't don't put it in my backyard, all right. But it, and it bears mentioning that this conversation came up recently with um, Atlantic Golf Club wanting to build some housing for their workers, and the neighborhood immediately was up in arms about where they wanted to put that. So, I mean, I, it's not a simple conversation to have, but that's all the more reason why we should be having it on a global, instead of trying to deal with it on individual projects, we should have a global conversation about how this is going to work. Um, and you're not going to get consensus from, I mean, everybody, it won't be unanimity, but you can get a consensus about some strategies that, that should work. Yeah. And that way, at least every, every place will be taking a similar amount of, of people in and, you know, have a way to kind of vet them to make sure that, you know, maybe they have to be uh, work locally or have, um, you know, be on the fire department or the ambulance corps or something like that. And, well, also, though, you're going to have to remember, Annette, what one community is going to be able to do financially should the governor sign this 
law into place is going to be very different from what another community can do just based on the revenue that's coming in. You know, the revenue coming that's into true. the coffers in East Hampton and Southampton will be far greater than what's coming into, you know, Riverhead, Southhold, Greenport, you know, although, I mean, I think, you know, all of those funds, you know, we'll see if, if real estate even continues on like a slightly downward trend, it'll still be, you know, a very successful fund um, just with how inflated the market is right now. Well, and, and as with um, as with the CPS, CPF, I think the towns, once that's in place and the money starts to come in, the, the towns can borrow against future anticipated income too, like they did with CPF. They, you know, the towns, the towns came in and did a lot of that borrowing and bought up a lot of vacant land before it was developed um, to, you know, to make sure that, you know, that land was being preserved. So maybe there's an opportunity to do that with affordable housing too. Once that's in place, if the governor signs it, then the towns can go and, and get some, get, get a little advance on that. When you have an affordable housing project, you are still subject to fair housing law, which is federal, not really any way around that. Uh, states can be stricter than federal, I believe, and I think New York is. And on top of that, if you take a New York State grant for affordable housing, there are strings attached to that. So you're thinking that you're going to put in an affordable housing project, it's going to be income qualified to people in entry level jobs, maybe to teachers, maybe to police officers and hospital workers, nurses, new doctors, that's what you think you're going to get. But you can't say no one over 60. You can't say no one who is disabled and unable to work. So you build 30 units. You think you're going to get between 30 and 60 adults living there added to the workforce. But a good portion of them might be people who are already retired. And now you've built them subsidized housing. They have a place to live, which is great, but it's not workforce housing. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions, Brandon. First of all, with the with the housing fund that we're taught that's being talked about being created, that would be town funding, right? And and could does that make a difference as far as who can qualify? Can the town create a list and and maybe weight a list based on um, people who are firefighters, people who are you know, um, essential workers, people who already live here, does it change the rules? Because it would, would that be town money rather than if it, if those projects don't take any state money? I would say that purely town funded projects will have more freedom than state funded projects, but also uh, think about what you're saying, right? We're going to provide housing for people who already live here. Yeah. What's the point? They already live here. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, I guess it's about more appropriate housing. And, and there might be a ripple effect that um, that retiree who moves into that housing that you create leaves a space, possibly locally, that could then be filled by a family. But uh, And the other thing is, I think that we've checked on this and the, the affordable housing projects that have been done in Southampton and East Hampton towns, those things you said are all true. They were, they, they were open enrollment anybody could apply. You don't have to live here and, and you don't have to be employed or anything like that. But I think that the housing folks say that the vast majority of applications come from working families that are looking for housing. True. I mean, I think, I think you're right that it is open to everybody, but it does tend 
when, when they open up, they tend to attract applications from people who already need the housing here because they work here. Because the town gets to make the choice ultimately, right? Usually it's done through a lottery system. Is it? Random. It's a ranked lottery. And the thing about applications, applications is one thing. Who actually gets it is another. So if Southampton Town reaches out to Southampton residents and says apply for affordable housing, but they also advertise it more broadly so other people apply, okay, you have a majority of Southampton Town residents have applied. You do the lottery. Number one is a Southampton resident. Great. Turns out number one's not income qualified. Number two, it's another town resident. Uh, number two makes too little income to qualify. So they're not sure that person's going to be able to afford rent. So that person doesn't qualify. The next person makes too much. The next person is a family of five when all the units have a maximum occupancy of four. So sure, a lot of Southampton residents apply, but anyone can apply. It doesn't mean that they're qualified. It doesn't mean that they're going to get it. Mm, interesting. Well, all the more reason. These are complicated questions and there's a lot of smart people out there and it needs to be at the top of the agenda, I think, on uh, with local elected officials. I mean, I feel like every topic we talk about, it always comes back to this, like every it, it really single does. topic comes back to housing. Yeah. Right. So, Joe, you have to figure this all out by Monday morning. This is your problem. All right. I'll get on it. I'll get on it. Please do. Go get your cookies and your and your uh, and your rugs. It's time for a nap. Now I want a cookie. Yeah. I want a nap. <laughs> Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.